All right, we are back. In our second segment, we're going to talk about, well, I don't know, a whole bunch of stuff. Kind of like ending on a positive note. So let's start with a positive note here in this segment, which tells a, a very weird story that, well, let's just, let's just take a dive into it here. To quote from The Economist, Using crowdfunding to raise money for science neglected by conventional grant-giving agencies is all the rage. Indeed, there's almost a return to a lost era of amateur naturalist philosophers and natural historians, with the twist that the amateurs merely stump up the cash rather than do the actual research. One of the latest projects to go down this route would probably have tickled the fancy of many a Victorian gentleman naturalist with a taste for unusual plants. It's an investigation of ferns. The magazine notes that although it's hard, as the price of DNA sequencing has plummeted, to believe that there's any important group of organisms which has not yet had the genome of at least one representative species scrutinized, Kathleen Pryor of Duke University claims that this is true of ferns. The fern is called a zola, and it doesn't look like a typical fern. It looks more like an aquatic plant. But it's described as probably the most economically important fern on the planet, and it may once have been responsible for changing the climate. Evidently, a zola has formed a partnership with several species of bacteria that manage a trick that no plant finds possible by itself, extracting nitrogen from the air and fixing it into chemicals like ammonia so it's available to make proteins. Apparently, Asian rice farmers have known of a zola's fertilizing properties for at least 1,500 years. And in many places, the fern is encouraged to grow alongside rice in patties, a sort of aquatic version of alfalfa. So perhaps DNA sequencing will show some light upon this fern and some of its bacterial uh, partners, but it also may shed some light on the Azola event of 49 million years ago. And no, I never heard of it either. But apparently, a giant bloom of this fern coincided with one of the biggest climate shifts that we know about. The surface sea temperatures in the Arctic, for example, dropped from 13 degrees centigrade to negative 9 dropped from 13 degrees Celsius to negative 9 degrees Celsius. And when you look back at this era, the mid-Eocene, what you find is there's lots of azola buried in polar rocks. The speculation is that continental drift at that time formed a polar ocean. It was even more cut off from the rest of the sea than today's Arctic Ocean is, and the result was something akin to a giant version of the Black Sea a fresh surface layer fed by rivers from the surrounding land and a bottom so stagnant anything falling into it would not rot. The surface layer would have been perfect for azola to live in and the bottom perfect for preserving it. So you're talking here about carbon dioxide fixation on a global scale. Some calculations suggest that a mere 800,000 years of this process of forming and burying azola, along with all the carbon it sucked out of the atmosphere, would have been enough to account for 80% of the drop in atmospheric CO2, and other rocks suggest this happened during the mid-Eocene. Pretty interesting stuff. And we have a bit of optimism in the um, worldwide collapse of frog populations, which has been worrying people for the past several decades. Apparently a chytrium-type fungus emerged in the 1980s and has been killing millions of amphibians all around the world. It cripples their immune system and makes them grow skin that's too thick to absorb water, which causes dehydration and heart failure. You can kill this fungus with antifungals, but that kills other organisms too, and it's only a short-term measure. So researchers in Florida are freezing the fungus to kill it and then putting dead fungal cells 
on frogs to see what happens. It turns out that uh, some of the frogs basically are vaccinated and survive at a higher rate. So it is that Jason Rohr of the University of South Florida in Tampa is hoping that they can continue to vaccinate wild amphibians by spraying dead fungus into their habitats. He wants to try it in the next couple of years, probably on an isolated amphibian colony in California, which is one of the worst affected areas in the U.S. Wish him well on this. I do note when I grew up in Fremont, the area down where the BART station is, which used to be a sinkhole, which still is a sinkhole from the Hayward earthquake fault. They just filled it in and built the parking lot. There used to be gazillions of little toads and frogs down there. It just it was like a it was like a, a cheering section from an arena at night when these things were all going at it. And I don't think I've seen a frog in my hometown now for the past, I don't know, 15 years. But actually I do have a plan on my own small way to re- restore the frog population by bringing some t- tree frogs in and creating a little aquatic habitat for them in the area. And uh, stay tuned for more news on that. And another frog-related news, which is a rare segue on this show. And darn it, where's our Australian correspondent when we need her? Apparently the cane toad, which was imported into Australia to supposedly kill bugs in the various uh, cane fields, has made itself a national pest. But the good news is, not nearly as bad a pest as some feared. Article in New Scientist last April took a look at this situation. And although they were imported back in 1935 to supposedly control pests in the cane fields, even though they had never proven themselves able to do so, after a few decades, people started realizing, hey, these things are killing our local uh, pets, dogs and the like, when they bite them. They have poison in their skin. But apparently evolution has kicked in. Although there have been some deaths from animals attacking these um, Toads, it doesn't always kill them, and the ones that uh, get sick quickly learn not to mess with them. And not messing with toads is giving some extended protection to other frogs, which the predators take a look at and figure, eh, better not. Although the article notes that uh, there have been uh, massive kills of crocodiles after trying to eat adult toads, apparently the young toads are not nearly as toxic, and when um, smaller animals, like crocodile hatchlings, attack them, They don't necessarily get that sick, although it was noted that uh, after a hatchling did try to bite a small toad, it only tried it once. It didn't mess with them after that. At any rate, the cane toad in Australia turns out to be a noxious uh, pest, but not a catastrophe, it appears. And speaking of environmental catastrophes, I guess we can always talk about one of our favorites, the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. But but first, but first, let's talk about this West Nile spraying that they're doing all over... uh, the local area. To quote from a July 25th editorial in the Sacramento Bee, Sacramento YOLO mosquito and vector control officials must do a better job of informing the public about plans for aerial spraying for West Nile virus in fields close to residential areas. North Natomas residents were justifiably incensed last week when they saw crop dusters flying over their neighborhoods and what appeared to be a release of the pesticide used for mosquito control. They hadn't been giving any warning of an impending spring. It was the weekend, and a cooler one at that, so windows were open to the evening, and people were outside when the rice fields north of Elkhorn Boulevard were doused with the pesticide-containing NALED, a substance toxic in high doses to all living creatures. 
The B notes, if there's been any lasting lesson from our collective embrace of the better living through chemicals mindset, it's that sometimes what we don't know can hurt us. To name a few examples, Decon, a commercial brand rat poison, kills disease-carrying vermin in a horrifying, though effective manner, but it turned out also to be implicated in the deaths of all sorts of animals that eat said vermin, including hawks, owls, martens, dogs, and cats. It was finally outlawed for commercial use in California at the start of this month. The herbicide Roundup really does kill weeds dead, so effectively, in fact, that it's done a wonderful job of depleting the main food source for monarch butterflies. And then there's DDT, a pesticide widely in use in the early 20th century until it was linked to widespread environmental degradation. A press release from UC Davis issued yesterday shows that DDT has been linked to slow metabolism, obesity, and diabetes. UCD scientists gave mice doses of DDT comparable to exposures of people living in malaria-infested regions where it's regularly sprayed, as well as the pregnant mothers of U.S. adults who are now in their 50s. Exposure of pregnant mice was linked to an increase in the risks of diabetes, obesity, high cholesterol, and related conditions in female offspring later in life. So yeah, we were told not to worry about DDT at one point not so long ago, and uh, apparently it's more toxic than we knew. Well, maybe this West Nile virus thing is a little out of control. Meanwhile, back to the BDCP, the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. Name that, even though it has... Nothing to do with conservation. What it's about is stealing more fresh water and shipping it to those who would use it down the San Joaquin Valley and Southern California. Another piece in the B worth quoting from is an op-ed from the July 29th issue titled, Tunnel Vision Would Worsen Health of the Delta and California's Fish Stocks. Piece by Doug Obegi and Kim Delfino, which notes in what is surely an understatement, A central part of the state's current plan to tackle California's thorny water challenges is the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, a hugely ambitious project to build two 30-mile-long, 40-foot-wide tunnels that would divert water from the Delta to locations south. While the project was originally intended to meet the co-equal goals of restoring the vital Bay Delta ecosystem and improving water supply reliability, the current proposal fails to do either. They go on to note the proposed BDCP ignores the overwhelming scientific evidence that we must increase the amount of water flowing through the delta to restore it to health and instead focuses on siphoning away even more river water than the 50% on average we already divert. Anyway, Doug Obeggy is a staff attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council's water program and Kim Delfino is California's Program Director for Defenders for Wildlife. Thankfully, these organizations are adding their voices to those who see this for what it is, uh, a big scam to divert water to people who would um, continue to use it to extract oil while growing monsoon crops in the desert and expanding real estate developments into arid regions. Oh, and by the way, the public comment period on this water project just um, just came to an end. Capital Public Radio quoted a Mike Jackson, attorney for the California Water Impact Network, calling the plan fatally flawed, adding, There are many mistakes in this document. Many questions have been pushed underground in appendices, much like they push the water grab underground. 
Meanwhile, Nancy Vogel with the Department of Water Resources said they extended the public comment deadline twice and received thousands of comments. She said, as we review the comments, we'll also consider whether to amend or revise the plan itself. And that may be necessary. Supposedly, the final environmental report will not be released until next year and that state and federal wildlife agencies would still have to approve it. Yeah, we'll see what kind of watchdogs they turn out to be. Speaking of being watched over, there's a piece I've been sitting on since last fall from the Sacramento Bee, piece by Loretta Kalb, about walking to school. It's worth a word or two. There were some pictures in the paper showing these kids being led by their principal, walking down Hurley Way as part of a, an effort to recognize International Walk to School Day. Peace notes that only a generation ago, walking to school or to a bus stop was a regular part of a daily life for millions of students in California. But these days, more than half of the students in California and close to 60% in the Sacramento region are shuffled to and from campuses in private vehicles. My first reaction when I saw this piece was, oh my God, are they going to act like walking to school is a dangerous activity? Well, it turned out that... Um, the, uh, the area they were walking over for the piece wasn't the absolute safest in the world, and so the, the time they spent educating these kids how to be safe pedestrians is probably a good thing. But I've been feeling for some time that we have a problem in this country about how much so-called adult supervision kids are receiving and how our attitudes about kids being off on their own is changing. Brief essay by William Falk on the current issue of The Week addresses this. Said, Mr. Falk, like most kids of my generation, I spent much of my childhood outdoors, free of direct parental supervision. In the summer, I'd go out the door at 7.30 a.m., return for lunch, and disappear until dinner. My wanderings on foot and bike in the Brooklyn of the 1960s took me miles from home to schoolyards, parks, backyards, alleys, empty lots, a bike path adjacent to the New York Harbor, and a municipal golf course where we built forts in the woods and got chased by the maintenance guys whom we easily outran. My days were rich with experience. I usually came home happy, though often bloodied, bruised, and streaked with sweat and dirt. Today, my parents could have been arrested for giving me such a long leash. It's evidently now a crime to let your kid roam beyond your field of vision. He goes on to note that true parental neglect is a terrible crime, but the more prevalent problem today is parental hypervigilance, and I include myself in the indictment. When my daughters were young, I hovered over them whenever they went outside, even on our quiet, dead-end street. My wife and I always knew where the girls were, and even their soccer games, biking, and skating had adult supervision. Most of the other parents I knew were just as protective. Consider the message we are sending with our constant, worried surveillance. The world is a deeply scary place, and you can't handle it without mommy and daddy's help. My daughters have become pretty independent, despite me, but I regret their childhoods were so much more circumscribed than mine. Like Mr. Falk, I think about my childhood when I was indeed away from parental supervision or any adult being around while we were out in the orchards, hiding out in the weeds, climbing trees. And I'm talking about age four. I think I'm a better person on account of this, and I just shudder to contemplate this notion of the fact that we have to have constant adult supervision. The week notes that a Connecticut woman, a mother, has now been charged with a crime because she left her 11-year-old in a car alone while she ran into a store. 
A nine-year-old in Georgia got taken into protective custody, and her mother is in jail after mom let her play in a public park while she worked at McDonald's. TheWashingtonPost.com said, Welcome to the criminalization of parenthood. The Post notes that arresting parents for questionable decisions is the latest manifestation of America's increasing over-reliance on the criminal justice system to address problems that were once, and better, handled by families, friends, communities, and other institutions. The fact that the state is micromanaging these parents' decisions is creepy enough. For authorities to be charging parents with crimes and taking their kids away, well, that's getting scary. Megan McArdle in BloombergView.com asked, America, what the heck is wrong with you? Why are we suddenly arresting parents for doing things that were perfectly normal 30 years ago? Yes, leaving an infant alone in a car is extremely dangerous. But an 11-year-old knows how to open a window or a door if he gets overheated. The New York Times noted that our culture has so embraced an upper-class vision of childhood as a rigorously supervised period in which unattended play is abnormal, risky, weird. But in reality, the danger of child abduction and other horrors is wildly overstated, and the vast majority of kids who are left unattended for brief periods of time are perfectly okay. If we arrest any parent who isn't with his or her kid 24-7, we'll have a police state growing in our midst. And I would note this phenomenon has extended into college students. I've heard stories about helicopter parents hovering over their child's every activity, extending into their years here at UC Davis that... um, that are pretty funny. We probably should devote maybe a segment to that sometime in the future. Let's talk for one minute about real dangers to children, which apparently include riding ferries in South Korea. This ferry disaster caused quite a stink in South Korea. Koreans were appalled at the behavior of the captain of the ship and his crew. The ship keeled over because the inexperienced 25-year-old third mate who was at the helm made too sharp a turn while navigating a tricky stretch of water sending the freight sliding to one side. According to survivors, officers ordered passengers to stay in their cabins for more than an hour. Finally, they were told to escape, but not instructed how, or escorted into lifeboats, and by then, the captain and some of the crew had abandoned ship. In the wake of this, they showed a clip, I don't know where it was, on television somewhere, showing the captain being asked by a a news crew like a month before the disaster, was there any danger? And he responded, nope, not if people follow our instructions. Well, the captain and crew have been put on trial for homicide. It sounds like they deserve it. And apparently the owner of the ferry got his just desserts in that um, his body was found last week having committed suicide. He had been South Korea's most wanted man. His name was Yoo Byung-un, described as a billionaire tycoon who also ran a cult. He was facing charges of tax evasion and negligence and was believed to have embezzled money that was intended for ferry maintenance. All right, let's see if we can lighten the mood a bit. And who better for that than America's foremost political comic, Will Durst? Hey, guys. Will Durst here to congratulate the GOP for following the will of the people and accomplishing absolutely nothing, obscuring their inaction by coordinating a party-wide Force 5 frenzy that would make rabid hyenas jealous. 
Something about Obama drives them crazier than chocolate banana fritters with raspberry sprinkles in a bento box. Maybe it's because he's the smartest guy in the room and isn't shy about sharing that opinion. Maybe he's the anti-Bush. Or because he looks different, extremely different. Could be they just want to stay in practice. Whatever it is, they don't get them, and they don't want to get them, and think it's a doggone crime that anybody else gets them. So now they're busy derailing any possible agenda by throwing a slew of dastardly insults onto his person. Dick Cheney called Obama the worst president of his lifetime, which is a mighty coincidence, since a lot of people think that Dick Cheney was the worst president of Obama's lifetime. John Boehner announced that he's going to sue the president. For what? Not even he knows, but you can be sure the term smarty pants is going to be bandied about. Sarah Palin called for the POTUS to be impeached. And Sarah Palin, demanding the punishment of someone for not properly fulfilling an office, has to be one of those pot with the kettle and the color black situations that we've heard so much about. Rick Perry said the president is behind a conspiracy responsible for the throngs of Central American kids crossing the border. And along with his new glasses, Rick Perry correctly pronouncing conspiracy is a huge upgrade. With Mitch McConnell in the Senate and the House and the Supreme Court lined up against him, it's amazing that the president has passed anything through Congress. Makes you wonder if we'll be able to affect positive change ever again. This political paralysis may just be the new normal. Instead of status quo, status no. America has gotten stuck. Unstuck. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. We're so pleased that on a weekly basis we can bring you the comedy stylings of Mr. Will Durst. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 